Hello there, my name is Jim Henson and I'm a puppeteer. And I'm called a puppeteer because I work with puppets. And my own act, my puppet act, is called the Muppets. And the dog that you saw at the beginning of the show is one of my Muppets. Now, there are all kinds of puppets. There are puppets which are large and puppets which are small. They're strange and yeah, weird yeah, yeah. puppets. But, but, but hand puppets are the best kind. Well, hand puppets are one of the kind of puppets that we have. It's called a hand puppet because it's worked with a hand. And you usually put your hand into it like this. Put your index finger into the head, the thumb into one hand, your other finger into the other hand, and you work it like this. Hi ho, and welcome again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational. Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and his Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host Nick Jackson. How is the world treating Nick Jackson? It has been a long year. 2020 is almost over, though, so that's nice. Is it? Is it really? Is it really almost Hope over? Springs Eternal. Time is an illusion. I have no idea. For those who are just joining us, this is a feat of lunatic daring. We are a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. If you want to know any more than that, we suggest you go back and listen to our preview episode that came out last week, where you get to know us and what we're going to do, but we're just going to jump into it. But before we start our story, I want to go ahead and ask people to check out our social media. We are at Lunatic Daring on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. While you're at it, you should also check out LunaticDaring.com, mostly because it has a sources page. And it has a, uh, a watch list page, basically links to videos for things you can watch in case you want to either read along or watch with us. So, Nick, uh, I think it's time to just get things started, right? Let's get it started, Chad. James Maury Henson was born in Greenville, Mississippi on September 24th, 1936. Four years, one month, and three days after his older brother, Paul Jr., Paul Henson Sr. was an agronomist from Oklahoma who had relocated to the Delta with his wife, Elizabeth Betty Brown, to take a job with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They settled in Leland, a town with a population just shy of 4,000. After six years in Mississippi, Paul Henson's career as a soil expert brought his family to the Washington, D.C. area, where he began working at the Beltsville Agricultural Research Center. They bought a house in Hyattsville on Tennyson Road, close to the university where Paul had earned both his master's in science and the hand of Betty Brown. Betty had grown to like Leland, and had to admit it was a nice place to raise her boys, but she was happy to be back east. To her, D.C. was home. She had come of age there and had been a secretary at the University of Maryland when she had met Paul. But more importantly, their new home was less than ten minutes from her parents, Maury and Sarah Brown, known to everyone as Pop and Dear. For little James, whom his family would always call Jimmy, this time in Maryland was a blur. He was too young to remember moving there, and was only a first grader when they left. His father had been transferred again, sent right back from whence they came. The next years in Mississippi would be idyllic and almost satirical in their Americana. In the summer, Cub Scout Jimmy, Paul Jr., their cousins Will and Stan, and their friends Gordon and Kermit would meet at the Broad Street Bridge that crossed Deer Creek, a tributary of the Yazoo River, which fed the Mississippi. Deer Creek wasn't a place for fishing and swimming, though. The waters were too murky and swampy and full of debris. So the barefoot boys would instead bring their own wild rumpus to the muddy shores. They would cruise the cypress-shrouded banks, taking shots at water moccasins with their red riders, or spearing bullfrogs for skinning and deep-frying. I was a Mississippi Tom Sawyer, Henson would say often. While he had seen The Wizard of Oz back in Hyattsville, he couldn't have been more than three at the time, and all he really remembered was the terrible roar of the MGM lion. Now, on Saturday afternoons in Leland, he and his friends would head to the temple, the town's brick movie theater, to chunk popcorn and catch up on the latest adventure serials with exotic titles like The Perils of Nyoka and The Desert Hawk. Now free to rule the country, he wrested away from his brother. Learn the answer in the evil eye. Chapter 2 of The Desert Hawk at this theater next week. He was a gadget freak, which he apparently got from his uncle, Ernie, and enjoyed assembling model airplanes and crystal radios with his brother. They enjoyed listening to the radio even more. They would run home from school to catch the day's programs like the Green Hornet or Fibber McGee and Molly or The Shadow. 
Most notably was perhaps the Chase and Sanborn Hour, which starred ventriloquist Edgar Bergen and his three-foot-tall alter ego, Charlie McCarthy. If you're confused by the idea of a ventriloquist on the radio, I am right there with you. But people were far more interested in the characters than the spectacle, which was fortunate given that Bergen wasn't exactly the most skilled at keeping his mouth shut while his dummies talked. Bergen's puppets could say or do things ordinary people could not. For the famously shy Jimmy, it must have been appealing. The freedom to express your innermost thoughts, your most outrageous opinions, or just the silliest damn thing that came into your head that day, and blaming it on the hunk of carefully crafted wood sitting in your lap. Charlie, in a little while you will be married to Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Charlie, there, there comes a time in, in everyone's life when when he must learn about uh, certain things. Yeah. Well, what do you want to know, Bergen? In 1948, Denson's moved again back to D.C. into a nice house in the newly incorporated University Park, blocks away from their old home and again close to Pop and Deer. While Sarah had made several visits to see her grandsons when they were in Mississippi, now, with them back in town, they were together every weekend and many days in between. And while Paul Jr. was doted on by his mother, Jimmy was closer to Deer. She was his teacher, his friend, his co-conspirator, and his biggest fan. She pushed him to read, taught him how to draw silly cartoon monsters, and shared his fondness for bad jokes and puns. Deer was deft with a pencil, and skilled with a paintbrush, but her true miracles were performed with a needle and thread, a skill Jimmy himself would later employ while creating a worldwide icon out of his mother's old wool coat. She listened to him as he created stories and worlds out of thin air, and encouraged him to embrace his considerable imagination. Whether she saw genius in her younger grandson, with whom she shared a birthday and so much more, is unknowable. But it's hard to imagine that she didn't. No telling of Jim Henson's life is complete without Sarah Brown. She was the first great creative influence in Jim Henson's life. In 1949, Jimmy caught a show at a friend's house and was instantly enchanted. It became his singular purpose to convince Paul Sr. to buy a television, which was no small ask. In 1950 you could get a brand new, super-powered 16-inch television from Philco for only $299.95, which is over $3,200 in 2020 money. But by the next year, his father had caved, and the Ensigns had their first television set at 4002 Beechwood Avenue. Jimmy watched everything TV had to offer, and honestly, in 1950, it didn't offer much. Washington's four channels must have seemed like a windfall compared to other markets. Henson devoured the cowboy shows, and the comedy reviews, and even the nightly weather report. Something had become clear to him. He wanted to know he needed to work in television. Crosley, makers of better products for happier living, present your show of shows. He loved the variety programs like Sid Caesar's Show of Shows and Milton Berle's Texaco Star Theater. He discovered the comedic music of Stan Freeberg and Spike Jones. Jim was a huge fan of Ernie Kovacs, whose visually inventive approach to television was unlike anything on the air then. Kovacs understood that the camera wasn't just there to capture a joke. It could also be in on it. Using visual tricks and bizarre, sometimes abstract humor, Kovacs understood that the real stage was the four sides of the TV screen, whether you have a live audience or not. It may have been Jim Henson's most important lesson in making TV. One of the biggest shows when Jim was young was a puppet show called Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, which had recently made the leap from local Chicago station WNBQ all the way to the National Broadcasting Company, Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Central. It was the brainchild of noted puppeteer Bertilstrom, Kukla was a clown puppet in the Neapolitan tradition, descended from characters such as Commedia dell'Arte's Punchinella, and most famously Punch from Britain's Punch and Judy shows. Ollie was a dopey dragon, with a single fang tooth and a sweet disposition. Kukla, Ollie, and their other friends lived on an elevated stage, behind which Tilstrom hid and performed, where a woman, the Fran of the title, singer and actress Fran Allison, would stand next to them and interact. It was entirely improvised with Tilstrom throwing whatever he had at sunny-natured Allison, who would respond in any number of ways, all off the cuff, 
and a lot of times they'd break into song. I'm going to be honest here. I looked at hours of Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, and I couldn't find even a little piece of audio to put on here for you that would be funny. It is some of the mildest entertainment you will ever encounter. Through my modern eyes, it's difficult to discern which moments are supposed to be funny, let alone those that actually are. I still recommend checking out their YouTube channel, where they post old episodes on a weekly basis. It's charming and old-fashioned, and, and when it was on the air, despite its gentle nature, it was more popular with adults than with children, and it counted heavyweights, such as Orson Welles, James Thurber, and my favorite novelist of all time, John Steinbeck, amongst its fans, as well, of course, as young Jim Henson. In high school, Jim was a well-liked young man. He was tall and thin, but never described as scrawny. He had terrible acne during his teens, and due to his mother's Christian science beliefs, it went unmedicated. He would hide the resulting pox and scars beneath a beard for most of his adult life. He was soft-spoken, with a nasally voice that was part mid-Atlantic, part Oklahoma, and maybe the tiniest bit of Mississippi drawl. He liked the girls, and the girls liked him back. His shy exterior proved to be quite attractive to the fair sex. He was a solid B student. He was on the tennis team. He published cartoons in the school paper. He participated in both the drama club, mostly just painting posters and sets, and the school's fledgling puppetry society. Again, more interested in the production design than the actual production. He didn't see himself as an actor or a comedian. He could draw, though, and he could paint. He had a good eye. He figured he could work as an art director or a scenic designer. His art skills are what would get him into television, and those were the skills he planned to cultivate. Near the end of his senior year, the local CBS affiliate, WTOP, put out a call for youngsters 12 to 14 years of age who can manipulate marionettes. They needed puppets for a new program called the Junior Morning Show. It wasn't the route he had planned, but Jim wasn't going to pass up a chance to set foot in a real television studio. Since most of his time in puppetry club was spent painting posters and talking to girls, Jimmy knew little about actual puppetry. He went to the University of Maryland library and checked out two books. Marjorie Batchelder's The Puppet Theater Handbook, which covers the more practical matters of building and operating puppets, and My Profession by Sergei Oberstov a Russian master's memoir of his career in the art. In less than a week, Jimmy and his friend Russell not only taught themselves how to be puppeteers, they also built several creations of their own, including Pierre the Rat, who wore a beret and had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, and Longhorn and Shorthorn, two cowboy characters. They were all based on comic strips Jim had drawn when he was younger. It was these basic, first-try puppets that they took to their audition at WTOP. You start in June, the producer told them. Jim Henson was now on television. The junior morning show didn't last long, because it turns out they had child labor laws back in 54, and the show was breaking them with several of their younger performers. But Jim so impressed the executives at WTOP that they kept hiring him to perform on other shows, because apparently in the 50s, every morning show had puppets on it. Jim started attending the University of Maryland while still living at home, intent on pursuing a career as a commercial artist. He sold silkscreen posters as a side business and participated in the college's drama program, again preferring working behind the curtain to standing in front of it. When a new puppetry course became available as an elective, it didn't take long for the underqualified instructor to realize that the Jesus-looking kid sitting in the back of the room clearly knew more than he did. Jim now had many hours of on-camera work and was, far as anyone knew, the only professional in the class. Jim took over and became the class's de facto professor, and in the process drew the attention of 20-year-old art education student Jane Nebel, who remembered him walking into class looking like, quote, Abe Lincoln. She was immediately drawn to his demeanor, his confidence, his talent, and his leadership abilities. He was impressed with her as a puppeteer and approached her about being his scene partner. The next job that came along, he would take Jane with him. In 1955, WRC in Washington hired Jim and Jane to perform puppets in one of their midday shows that they had aimed at housewives. This show, creatively named Afternoon, wanted to add puppet segments in between the ones about cooking and fashion. 
On March 7, 1955, the TV highlight section of the Washington Post had a small blurb about the show. 2.15 p.m. Afternoon. New variety program features Mac McGarry and Willard Scott, yes, that Willard Scott, as co-hosts. Fashion information from Inga. Music by the Mel Clement Quartet. Vocals by Jack Maggio. And special features by the Muppets, who are puppeteers. According to author Brian J. Jones, this is the first time the phrase Muppets appears in print, although he notes that Henson may have been using that term on invoices as early as December of 54. For a long time, Henson would tell people that the word Muppet was just a combination of marionette and puppet, or maybe just a play on the British word Moppet, but later admitted he just thought it was a funny word. Whatever the origin, he was branding himself and his work and his characters long before anyone knew who he was. After two months of working on Afternoon, Jim and Jane were offered their own show that would run from 11.25 to 11.30 every weeknight, right between the local news and the Tonight Show with Steve Allen. The five-minute program would be called Sam and Friends. It premiered on May 9th, 1955. The Muppets had arrived. Sam and Friends is brought to you by... So, Nick, Sam and Friends, had you ever seen it before? Not before I started doing the research for this episode, no. Yeah, I had seen parts of it before, but it had never really stuck with me. Sam and Friends, of course, was Henson's first show. It was a five-minute show that ran before this night show, but eventually, I believe, I think eventually it ended up being three times a day Yeah, at one point. Um, they, they started getting multiple rotations. Jim and Jane were sort of day in, day out, doing multiple shows. Uh, I, I think it was repeat performances. I could be wrong about that. I think sometimes, but it was all live. And that's the one thing to remember about the show is this, this was full on live television. And it was five minutes of puppets every night. I think eventually they got the spot before the evening news. And then they had the spot after the evening news and before the t- Tonight Show. So that's pretty sweet. And it didn't take long for them to get pretty popular in the the dc area just a word before we start talking about the show itself the show doesn't actually exist that's the first thing we have to really talk about back then in television if your show went out live that was just it you went to the station you did your thing it went out into the ether it hopefully got picked up by the eye holes and ear holes of some people and then it just vanished forever the only way to get footage of those television shows, those early television shows, was that what they would do is they would use something called a kinetoscope. You know what that is? I, I, I'm not familiar with that. Basically, the way they would do it is they would take a, like a 16 millimeter film camera, which I'm guessing was like a magnetic audio strip, and they would just point it at a live television monitor. And then they would film the show off the monitor. Videotape was starting to become a thing, but it definitely wasn't a thing at a local Washington, D.C. television station. Hmm. So the only way you had a recorded version of these television shows was if you consciously did it. And Henson only recorded his episodes when there was something about them that he wanted to review. Or maybe he was trying something, wanting to see how it went, doing something special. Because it was quite a big deal. If you do some really, really loose math, what is available to us is about a dozen episodes, which is less than 1% of the output of the entire show. We haven't actually seen Sam and Friends, have we? Outside of the the excerpts that we've seen, no. It would be really interesting to talk to someone who could remember some of the episodes that we might not have seen. There's records online of, like, on This Week in 1959, Sam and Friends did an Elvis song, and then that would go in, like, a list somewhere. But besides that, like, it's gone. And and that's fine. And so what I think Sam and Friends is worth looking at, or what we have, is, of course, it's just a very protean view of, of what Jim Henson was going to become. And I'll say this, he was already kind of there. It does, like, it, it does sort of remind me of something that a college student would do when they're still sort of feeling out what they can do to create. And it's very, especially for the time, it would have been very, very ambitious for him to have built and sort of interacted with those sets. There's the mention of Kovacs' influence in terms of recognizing the four corners of the television screen as your stage and just being able to interact with that. The show, for people who don't know, it starred a character named Sam. We don't know much about Sam because of all the clips that survive, there's only one clip with Sam in it from it from a six-year show called Sam and Friends. But Sam, how would you describe him? He looks like a boxer, doesn't he? He looks like he's been punched a few too many times. 
A lot of those early Muppets had that look, though. Kermit would be an exception, but, like, Yorick also looked like someone who would just come out on the wrong side of a boxing match. Yeah, Yorick was, like, this big purple skull. York, York was very Cookie Monster-like, though. He loved to eat stuff. Uh, and, and Nick mentioned it, of course. The most important character to come out of it was Kermit, who notably was not a frog, right? He wasn't identified as a frog. Like, he didn't... He still looks very much like Kermit without the ringlet around his neck. We have these dozen episodes, and I'm going to go through them briefly, but a lot of the stuff we're seeing is also, I think, late period, because it was a long time before Henson was comfortable using his voice. For the first couple of years, it's all just lip-syncing and pantomiming to records. It took a long time before Kermit used his voice. In fact, I believe the very first character that Henson ever voiced was a character named Professor Madcliffe. He's in some of the sketches. He might be in one of the sketches that's available, but he was mostly known for, you know, in old-timey television. The ads and the TV shows were one and the same. Mm -hmm. At the end of every Salmon Friends, there would be like a little commercial for, and for most of the time, for a company called SK Meats. They were the the main sponsor for Salmon Friends. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll try to remain calm as I tell you about the new SK Idea in flavor. It's the new SK Pork and Bacon Sausage! It combines a wonderful taste of pure pork sausage with the delicious flavor of hickory-smoked quality bacon! He's kind of the beginning of the long line of over-the-top salesman-type characters, almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Guy Smiley. One of the things that's also lost, uh, we mentioned earlier, Pierre the Rat, which uh, was, by all accounts, probably the first puppet Henson created. Pierre was on Salmon Friends. We just we just don't have any of the footage. There's just Well, sorry, there is just no footage. <laughs> He wasn't uh, the the puppet in the Poison to Poison sketch. Uh, no, that's Harry the hipster. Mm. Harry Harry was kind of the, I'd say second lead. I, I, again, we're basing it on a dozen episodes, so it's kind of like with Kermit. We don't we don't have the first appearance of Kermit the Frog on film, and there's no record really of the first time that Kermit came on screen. That was a weird thought. Uh, ones that, that we saw, there's one called the Huntley and Brinkley Hour, where Kermit is interviewing David Brinkley and Chet Huntley, who were big-time newscasters back then. Do you remember that bit? Do you remember what they did in that one that was funny? Isolating the humor is a little bit harder for me to, to say. I do remember them sort of talking around Kermit a lot in Kermit, in typical Kermit fashion, sort of getting kind of flustered. The idea of the skit is interviewing these guys, but they only speak in pre-recorded dialogue from their broadcasts. I didn't catch that. Yes, indeed, but let's not be quite so formal. Why don't you just call me Kermit, and I'll call you, uh, uh, well, what would you like me to call you? Chet Huntley. Oh, okay, Chet Huntley. Tell me, as a newsman, you're in a position to evaluate all the news and wire services. What do you think is the very best news service? NBC News. Oh, is that right? You like NBC News best? Any particular NBC News office? Washington, Los Angeles, New York. Uh-huh. Well, I guess that figures you work in there and all. There's these two characters named uh, Hank and Frank, I think, which are kind of the... We'll learn when we get to the Muppet Show the idea of the, the whatnot. Mm-hmm. Kermit would ask a question, and then they would respond with this very canned answer. He interviews the first guy, and it's very, and, 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 you know, and if you're in on the joke, you figure, like, oh, okay, it's just pre-recorded. And then Kermit says, when he interviews the next guy, he goes... You know, I bet some of the smart alecks in the audience have already figured out what you're going to say when I talk to you. But never mind them. Just relax and be yourself, you know? But it's, he's basically saying, like, I know you guys get the joke, but we got another half of this thing to do. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting little bit, but it's not as much fun as the next one, which is a weird little piece that has two names. When it starts, it's called Powder Burn. It's a Western. But then at the end, which I think is more appropriate, it's called Pun Smoke. But it is a fully scripted episode. There's no pre-recorded music from other sources or anything. It is just five minutes of, I believe the character's name is uh, Chicken Liver, uh, who's this big kind of ugly lumpy looking dude who is very appropriately named. It's kind of a parody of the movie High Noon, but it's mostly just an excuse for a whole lot of puns. Like the, the wordplay from this particular segment, it, by modern standards, it's going to drag a little bit. But for the time, I have to imagine that everyone that was just sitting there watching as you expect them to go one way to figure out what the, the imminent threat is of Black Bart coming in. And they, they spin it on its head at the end of the thing. It's They're not actually going to have a shootout or a duel. Chicken Liver plays a character named Marshall Matt Dilly, who is the marshal of a small town. And this guy, Black Bart, is coming to town for a showdown. 
and he is uh, he's 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 kind of a coward. Not Black Bart. Uh, the marshals kind of there's so many undercuts leading up to that point and it's short like we we're talking about this like it's a full 30 minute episode of something it's not the wordplay is very rapid fire and then you're expecting it's a jim henson bit so you're expecting someone to blow up or someone to get eaten or something and it's not like that at all it walks a long way to get to its puns marshall dillon marshall dillon who's there that's me pester why marshall dillon what in the world are you doing under the desk? I was tying my shoelaces. Did you hear shooting just now? But you wear cowboy boots, Marshal Dilly. They don't have laces. It wasn't an easy job, Pester. I was just out target shooting, Marshal Dilly. I hope I didn't scare you. Scare me? Why don't be ridiculous? See who it is, Pester. I've got to tie my shoelaces again. Shoelaces? But you don't have any. See who it is. Pester. It's your girlfriend. Send her in. And Pester? Yes, Marshal? You know that bunch of squares that came to town? Yes. Well, go out and shoot them. Shoot them, Marshal Dilly? You can do it, Pester. You've always been a square shooter. <laughs> All right. That is a long way to go for a square shooter joke. <laughs> and uh, and that's kind of the level of humor of that episode, I would say. Yeah, it, that's that's pretty representative of it. But the thing is... Especially with us seeing Kermit at this point in time, I'm glad to have seen Sam and Friends to see how it's going to progress toward the Muppets and beyond. It's still tight here, though. Like, it doesn't punch in the same way, but there's still that sort of, I guess, internal cohesion to the piece. I mean, some of it's got to be chucked up for, I mean, we're, we're going to say this a million times on this show as we go forward, that the man was a genius. He obviously learned and developed, but he also is one of those people that came out more fully formed than a lot of us. <laughs> I mean, remember, he, he he had gotten this job doing doing puppets, and they kept hiring him over and over again because he was good at it, even though he had never done it before. He was just good at stuff. <laughs> There's an episode called A Horse Named Bill, which is just hit, which is sometimes called Luna, which is just Kermit uh, singing to a, uh, a traditional folk song. I, I just thought it was worth pointing out because he's got a banjo in it. And if you watch something like that, again, it's just lip syncing to pre-recorded audio by somebody else. It's all about the performance. And man, even this early, the performances are so good. <laughs> I guess we should talk a little bit about the Muppets and the innovations that Henson created. Why was Sam and Friends different from something like a Kukla, Fran, and Ollie? I mean, one of the big things is that you didn't see any non-Muppets on, on the screen, but also there's... There's a quality that's been ascribed to the Muppets where if a, a puppeteer, or I'm forgetting the, the proper name for them at the moment. It's, it's technically puppeteers. It's either puppeteer or Muppet performer. Uh, Muppeteer is the one that I think is a little frowned upon. You could be sitting on a couch next to a Muppet performer wearing whatever, whatever their particular character is and have a full authentic conversation with the, the character they're portraying. With the other person being fully in your periphery, right? That presence is still going to be evident here, and I don't think that would have necessarily been the case with Kukla, Fran, and Ollie. People, people really cared. Like, I mean, Kukla, Fran, and Ollie was popular. People, I, there was an episode actually where Kukla got a cold. You know, he sneezed, and people sent him real handkerchiefs. It's really sweet. Uh, the other thing that uh, innovation I wanted to bring up because this is going to be a constant through the entire run is you, you're absolutely correct. They exist in their own world. Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, the puppets existed in the human world and were very clearly puppets. But when you're in the Muppet world, you're in the Muppet world. But the other thing that he did, and I, I believe he developed it during this time and became famous for it, was the idea of using monitors to watch his own performance in real time. That became something the Muppets were very known for. Other people had done it, but not the way he did it. I mean, they had to teach themselves how to act backwards. Yeah. They're looking at this monitor that's that's absolutely backwards from what they're doing, and they are so proficient at it. Uh, like you said, that Ernie Kovac spirit, the, the, the frame of the, that is our playground. The, instead of having performers hiding behind stages, they were just off camera, which doesn't seem much, but I actually read Marjorie, uh, Marjorie Bashelder's Puppeteer Handbook. I read both the books, actually, that Jim Henson read to learn how to be a puppeteer. He didn't learn any of that from those. <laughs> the, those books are interesting because you can see how much he changed the art form. 
Well, there's a there's a level of immersion that I think is very, very important. And it's something we will look at Henson's creations and we'll be blown away by the visuals because they're all even at during the Sam and Friends era, they're very visually impressive. But the attention to the way that sound plays in and the way that it positions the audience is something that I think he's been aware of basically since the start. We made reference to uh, a ventriloquist show that was heard over the radio and how that might have been something that was compelling despite the fact you couldn't see the voices that he was throwing, but the thrown voices were the point. Yeah, the the characters. It was all about the characters. Exactly. The Muppets are character-driven, and, and if you don't like them, then who cares what they're doing? <laughs> I was stunned by the level of maturity in the performance at this stage, e- even when they're just lip-syncing to an old novelty song. Speaking of old novelty songs, actually, the next one I want to talk about is one of my favorites. It's called uh, C'est Bon, which is a, uh, an old a French song, but they're lip syncing to a version that Stan Freeberg had made. Stan Freeberg was a recording artist and a comedian, and sometimes what he would do is he would take tracks and then he would alter them and kind of layer comedy bits on top of them. Like for this case, it's it's uh, someone singing a song and two people singing back up, but they can't quite get on the same page. Mm-hmm. For those who, who know their Muppets, this is just the first version of Menomino. I, I don't know where the, the dividing line is, but there's that aspect to Jim around the time that he was in college where he had a, a higher concept approach to things, and that would come back later in some of his technological innovations and his attention yeah. to that. This is higher concept than Menomino was, but not saying that it's a particularly high concept piece. Right. But Menomino seemed like it was somehow more and less self-aware than this particular one was. I don't know how to properly articulate the, the division there. Menomino is a sketch that was on, I know it was on, it was on the very first episode of The Muppet Show. It was on Sesame Street, and I believe it may have been done on a talk show at some point, like Ed Sullivan or something before that. Mm. What he does in the Saban sketch is the, the main character, he's singing to the camera, and the way he uses the camera is in the same way. He pops in and out. What, what Henson realized was that there was comedy to be mined in char- the character just kind of popping in and out of the sides of the frame. Using the frame and using the character's leaving and entering frame is a big way to get laughs in the Muppets. And Menomino mm-hmm. and Saleban actually ends with him like doing the exact same things Menomino does, popping up from underneath the frame, popping in from the side. So it's a very similar structure. You, you can see his comic sensibilities developing, mm-hmm. and they develop partially from these people like Stan Freeberg and Spike Jones, these old comedians. That one, when I was watching it, I watched it a few times, and I was like, yeah, it's just Menomino. It's just the first time he tried Menomino. Or maybe not, again, maybe not the first time, maybe the ninth time. We don't know how many episodes were before it. There's a skit called I've Got You Under My Skin, which is just, again, it's a, it's a Stan Freeberg. It's, a, it's actually a Cole Porter song that was, I think, made famous by Sinatra. But in this case, it's a Stan Freeberg part. It's a bunch of Muppets trying to sing a song together, but the one person's in the lead and the others are the choir, but the choir just ends up repeating everything the lead says instead of singing their songs. It's, they're singing the quiet parts out loud. And hey, that one's fine. There's Poison to Poison, one of my favorites because I'm a huge Alfred Hitchcock fan. And uh, this is a Spike Jones bit where Harry the Hipster, who's playing uh, Ed Burrow, or uh, who is, you know, a substitute for Ed Murrow, the newsman at the time, who is interviewing Chicken Liver, who is playing Alfred Hitchcock. And it's basically just four minutes of really bad macabre puns. But really, I'm very busy preparing my new cinema. Oh? What's the name of it? It's a musical called Death Takes a Holiday, cha-cha-cha, with an all-star cast. Goulbrenner, Perry Comer, Red Skeleton, Slab Hunter... And I, you probably remember this one. This one's called Hunger is From. Do you remember this one? This terrified me as a child. It is kind of scary, isn't it? Like, there's nothing... There's nothing, like, that would constitute a jump scare, but something about just being in a space with this creature that's just like, I'm hungry, I'm gonna keep eating things. So Yorick, this just like, who's just a purple skull, is just... he he. It's a spoken word performance by a guy named Ken Nodine talking about being... basically eating a snack in the middle of the night. All the sketches is York just eating while this kind of, I guess you'd call it jazz, is playing. And then someone's talking over the jazz. One important thing about this, if you notice, so the hand. Mm-hmm. He's using a, a human hand to eat with. And that 
presages, I think, the use of live hand puppets that we're going to see later, actually next week. I'm going to put this out there. These were a bunch of co- they, these they were still college students when they were making a lot of these shows. Henson graduated college while still making Salmon Friends. This is just stone. This is a stoner bit, right? <laughs> it's silly to say this, but I look at a little olive like this, mm. and it tastes wonderful. This has got a seed in it. But I like them pitted too. I don't have to worry about the stone. Mm. That's why I do this practically every night of the week. Mm. Oh, not every night, but but yeah. It's not not a stoner bit, but it's <laughs> like it's for force doing something like that though. Everything about the way that the composition is set up, yeah. Is very clean. I, I definitely recommend people watch this one online because it's kind of hard to get the, how kind of creepy the vibe is. Yeah, don't watch it in a dark room. I wouldn't recommend doing that later. No, you know, it's only four minutes, but it's kind of creepy. And uh, I, the other night I watched it and I was in an um, inebriated state and I thought it was awesome. So <laughs> maybe it is made for, maybe, maybe, I mean, these were college kids making silly stuff for other college kids. They were just doing stuff to make themselves laugh. This wasn't for children. You know, and a theme we're going to keep hitting on during this entire show is that Henson was very adamant that Muppets were not kids' entertainment. And uh, Sam and Friends definitely wasn't. I think anybody who, um, you know, imbibes medically and legally in their state of choice will probably <laughs> will probably enjoy Hunger From. And, and, and I'll identify with uh, Yorick's plight. <laughs> I wonder if the other end of the celery tastes good. Top end tastes as good as the bottom end. <laughs> I think I'll eat the leaves. Why not? Probably the most important bit to come out, or the most famous bit to come out of what we have of Sam Friends is a bit called visual thinking. It's a mix of puppetry and, and animation. Kermit is trying to do this thing called visual thinking, where he would think something, and then it would appear over his head in like a cartoon. And then Harry the hipster comes on, and Harry's way better at visual thinking because he's a hipster and he's all in the jazz, right? And then, of course, things go out of control and, and, and the words end up taking over the whole screen. But this is a bit that they use many times in other shows. I think they even did it on Sesame Street as well. They've definitely done this on Sesame Street. Yeah, and this one is one of the ones that does not surprise me that we have it on film. Because this is the type of skit that he would have wanted to record on the kinescope to review. So you can go back and see how it went. It, this could be the fifth try at it. Again, we have no idea. Uh, there's a really, I thought, boring sketch called The Westerners, which is um, them lip syncing to an old Bob and Ray bit about some cowboys who can't get off their horses. I don't know. The only thing I found notable was it uses the the frame. It uses the four walls of the frame. And so them kind of moving in and out of it and being stuck is part of the humor. The camera never moves, so these two guys are trying to get off their horses, and you never see the horses. You just see the top of the... The fact that they keep get it, like going in and out of frame, it, it creates this kind of box they're trapped in, um, and I think leads to the humor, but I still think it's kind of... I bet you don't even remember this one. I think I remember it for the horses going backward, which is not saying a lot. It does fall pretty flat, but it's, it's still... I don't know. I think it was a good thing to see. I think it's probably, oddly, the more indicative of what a lot of Salmon Friends was. Because, like I said, this was a pre-recorded bit from the uh, radio slash, you know, comedy guys, Bob and Ray. Mm. And this was actually, I think, I think the, the these kind of befuddled uh, cowboys was kind of a running gag on Bob and Ray. So it wouldn't surprise me if there were, if Henson had done more of these with the same characters. The next couple of bits are probably my two favorites. There's uh, That Old Black Magic. Which is firstly notable because it is the only one of these episodes that has Sam in it. Did you know that Sam's friends were all supposed to be manifestations of different parts of his character? I remember reading something to that effect in the biography, but I, when I was watching the clips, that was lost on me. There's no frame that's established to be like, the usual context you would see for that sort of a setup involves the character more directly. You don't see the other aspects of their personality going off without them as much. Given how little we have, 
Who knows if that actually ever came to fruition? Who knows if that was just something in his mind? You know, it's very possible the audiences in the 1950s didn't know that either. We just we just have no idea because we haven't seen the stuff. But that old black magic is the, in my opinion, the most technically dazzling of these available episodes. It begins with Harry the hipster and Yorick watching a television. On the television is Sam. And Sam is kind of stuck. There's a song and he keeps repeating himself. And they're like, oh no, the TV's stuck. So maybe if I just hit the television like this. And then Sam starts dancing. And the song they're playing is That Old Black Magic. It's a version by Louis Prima. Um, and I believe is the woman singing it to Keely Smith. But what happens is they unstuck the TV and then the camera moves into the television. Remember, this is on live television. The camera moves into the TV where Sam is without a cut. And all of a sudden we're in the television with Sam and then eventually Kermit who comes in wearing a wig. Early Muppets were very Shakespearean or Python-esque, we you to call it, where there weren't a lot of female puppets. So a lot of the male puppets would have to just wear wigs. I will say not as much of an excuse as you would say in Shakespeare times, because at least these are puppets. They could have easily made a female puppet. But it moves in, and then Sam and, and Kermit do this amazing dance and performance to that old black magic with uh, Sam uh, miming the Louis Prima part and Kermit being Keely Smith. And it's just, it shows you, I actually loved Sam after watching this, even though he's, he, I don't believe he spoke on the show at all. All he did was lip sync. But man, there's some energy in that performance. Was Jane performing Sam in that case? Uh, we don't, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know. But I, 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 yeah, I don't know. You know, we'll talk about it probably a little bit next week, but we don't know much about Jane Henson as a puppeteer. Uh, we know that Jim was impressed with her skills, and we know that he's the one that approached her to become a scene partner. But because she stopped, you know, uh, she retired fairly early from doing it, the bulk of her work just isn't there for us to review. I don't know if that's her because I just, you know, I haven't found that information. And plus, I just don't know if that's what she would, if that's her, if she could do that. I think she was probably a really good puppeteer. We just have no evidence of that, <laughs> you know. Hmm. Then when they're done with the song, the camera pulls back out of the TV. All one shot. And we're back in the living room. And then it seamlessly evolves into an SK Meets commercial. All one shot. And it must have been so much fun, but also such a pain to set up. Technically, it is the most impressive thing that we got to see from Sam and Friends. And there's a, then there's, did you watch the one, the Singing in the Rain one? I don't remember seeing that one. So, so, to split, so Singing in the Rain is a little girl Muppet lip syncing to a sped up version of Singing in the Rain. And it's not as disturbing as the Clockwork Orange, but it's still fairly unsettling. But as she sings, it starts raining. And then it keeps keep raining more. And then it keeps raining more. And then it keeps raining more. And eventually, she basically drowns in a pool of water. <laughs> the Muppet version of the Little Nash Girl. There, there's this tradition later where you will have a character. And, and, and again, I think this speaks to Henson and to Kermit. Where you have this character where everything around them is going wrong. But they are trying to persevere. Uh, we'll see that later with Wayne and Wanda on the Muppet Show. I think that's entire the entire existence of Kermit the Frog. So this little girl is singing, singing in the rain, and there's this kind of like Alanis Morissette definition of irony happening, where the more she sings about singing in the rain, the more rain it is. But it keeps getting worse, and the weather keeps getting worse, and it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. But then at the end, she like basically. I mean, did I mention the little girl drowns? <laughs> Like, it's crazy. Like, I mean, there's no, like, you know, there's no coroner's report. There's a couple other bits that are... So, one of the more famous Muppet bits was a thing called Glowworm slash Inchworm. It was on Sam and Friends, but it was also used on Ed Sullivan, Jack Parr, The Tonight Show, Hollywood Palace, The Mike Douglas Show. And I, I'm going to be honest with you, looking around, I'm not sure which version of the bit that I watched. I'm not so sure the Sam and Friends version exists out there, but it's a very classic bit about Kermit... You should check it out if you haven't. It. It's about Kermit eating a couple of worms. He's just sitting there singing a song, and a couple of worms come up, and he's like, eh, I'll eat this worm, and he eats the worm, and then he eats the next worm. And then the next worm he eats, it turns out it's the nose of a giant monster. And as he eats it, it's like spaghetti. It keeps getting longer. And then do you know what the monster does at the end? 
I'm going to assume that it eats it. Of course it does. It's the Muppets. Blow stuff up or have something eat something. Henson never met a sketch that he didn't like ending with an explosion or someone eating something, which is funny because he was a guy who was largely anti-violence on television. Which, I mean, we did just finish talking about a bit where a little girl likely drowned, but with a laugh track, somehow it's less disturbing. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's a funny bit. And then there's a couple that aren't really available. There's one called Weather Warehouse that may be in an archive somewhere, but I wasn't able to find it to view. There's one where uh, Kermit lip syncs to a Stan Freeberg version of a, the Yellow Rose of Texas. There is a bad quality version out there that's like a secondhand copy of a secondhand copy. And he also did the same bit on the Steve Allen show. So you can kind of, you can see what the bit is, but it's just Kermit singing the Yellow Rose of Texas with like a drummer kind of, he's having some problems with his drummer, which again is a bit that will come back on the Muppet show of, of uh, someone trying to play a musical act and one of the musicians, usually animal, not cooperating very well. And then there's one called Chef Omar. Omar was a character on the show and this one is completely unavailable. It exists. It's known to exist. That's all the Salmon Friends we were able to watch. I guess my question is, do you like Salmon Friends? The short answer is yes. Um, but it's from a detached view. Like, I don't I don't love it in the same way that I love a lot of his later work. But in terms of understanding the full... Or I, I'll never be able to say that I understand the full aspect of Jim Henson. But a fuller understanding of Jim's trajectory forward. I'm glad that I was able to see this. And I do like seeing those early shining parts that would eventually be polished later on. The weird thing about it is there are shows that I watched in the like the early 2000s which were more decidedly crass but still involved puppet work that was very similar to what you saw in Sam and Friends down to what looked like the way that some of the puppets were constructed and perhaps they were calling back to this and trying to make them look a little bit more grotesque or what have you but there's something surreal about seeing it from the 60s or the yeah. 50s even. Yeah. I would say it's impossible for anyone to actually be a, a fan of Sam and Friends. What we've gotten to see is less than 1% of the entire show. If I had watched 10 minutes of an episode of West Wing, I could not tell you I was a West Wing fan. I don't have – I found myself – I've watched this group of, of episodes now four or five times, and I have found something to like in all of the bits. And I have found, like you said, it's interesting to see how Henson it already is. But I, I can't consider it kind of a – a satisfying experience. No one's favorite show is Sam and Friends. It won't be in a modern context. It would be really interesting to talk to someone who, I guess, was significantly more advanced in age, who remembered Sam and Friends fondly and would just talk about, not not necessarily the bits themselves, although they might talk about them, but they'll talk about the memories surrounding it. Because the experience of watching this would have been something significantly different. And someone who would have bonded over this very strange experimental series that would have, I guess, what the, the top running time would have been what, eight minutes or something in that neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, it was usually five. Yeah. Five minutes, but they, it meant enough to people for them to try to get it back on the air after it got canceled and people got really irritable about it. Oh yeah. Early on, it got, it, it, the time slot moved, it got canceled. They, I mean, uh, several times and the, um, the audiences, you know, they made, they made themselves known. And remember there were only, you know, three networks back then. And then when you were in a local market, I mean, television had only become popular in the U S during the fifties, you know, the fifties is the year, those post-war years, the fifties are the years that TV kind of started to, or, or did surpass radio as the number one form of entertainment in Americans homes. But there weren't a whole lot of choices. <laughs> if you found something that you liked, you probably, you wanted more of it. By the time of Sam and Friends was over, they were running, I think at some point they had like two episodes of Sam and Friends, but then the characters were also appearing on another show. Then they were doing all their the ad breaks in between for mostly for SK Meets. I think it's hard to form a definitive opinion about Sam and Friends. Everyone who made it, everyone who worked on it is gone. And even in later, even even as Hen when Henson was you know older, he, they didn't talk about it that much. There's just there's just not a record of a lot of it. It was it was a couple of college kids doing it by the seat of their pants. The elements that I was able to pick out of these episodes that are very early Muppet, I was really appreciative of. But the show itself, I I, I still don't think I've seen Sam and Friends, and I don't think I ever will. There's a detached way in which I'm a fan of what I've seen. Oh, I ag I agree. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm glad I saw it. You make a good point, though. We can't really 
maybe these were like a weird outlier to the rest of the show that was something that was either significantly more zany or significantly less so. We have no idea, <laughs> you know, whether we would still find it funny. But these dozen or so clips that we have, I think, are wonderful and are, are an important place to start our story because that's where he started his. Um, when we when we set out to do this, my original idea was for us to start with the Muppet Show. And as I started doing my research, I realized, wait a minute, he was on TV in 1954. That's 22 years before The Muppet Show starts. We should probably talk about that, too. The National Broadcasting Company presents... Tonight, starring Steve Allen. Sam and Friends had only been on the air a year when the Hensons were asked by NBC to do The Tonight Show with Steve Allen. The segment they chose was built on Rosemary Clooney singing, I've Grown Accustomed to Your Face for My Fair Lady. Kermit, in a blonde wig, serenades what appears to be a beautiful woman, only to discover, with creeping horror, that this beauty is actually poor Yorick in disguise. The bit ends with Yorick trying to eat Kermit, because, well, that's how you end a Muppet bit. The Muppets' coming out party was a success, and they made several more national appearances over the next few years, including another visit to Steve Allen, this time on his own show. Introduce a couple of people now. Well, I don't know if I use the word people advisedly, but it's several uh, years ago in Washington, D.C. There are two young college students, uh, Jim Henson and Jane Neville. They got together with some little puppets and uh, they formed what uh, people in Washington now know as the Muppets. A little different than the puppet. And you folks in Washington, D.C. know them very well. They've been appearing there over to WRC-TV for two and a half years, and they're very big favorites, and we can see why. We had them on our Tonight Show a few weeks ago, and they broke it up, so we're happy to have them with us today. Here are the Muppets. In 1957, Wilkins brand coffee could be found in a quarter of D.C. kitchens, including the one in the White House. After the success of the Muppets Tonight Show debut, they approached the Hensons to produce a series of local commercials, each of them only about eight seconds long. It was a bold choice because up until then, most TV ads were linear. Here is the product. Here is what it does. Here is why you need it. And more importantly, here is where you can buy it. There wasn't time for humor or irreverence. The Wilkins sales slogan was, Use Wilkins Coffee. It's a wonderful way to start the day. That wasn't quite Jim's style, though, was it? He created two new characters, Wilkins, who loved his namesake Bean, and Wonkins, who never touched the stuff. While Jim voiced both characters, Jane performed Wilkins, while Jim took control of Wonkins, which was fitting, because Jim Henson really hated coffee. Each ad would follow the same general template. Wilkins would encourage Wonkins to try his coffee. Wontkins would then gruffly refuse and then immediately suffer some sort of karmic injury for his lack of taste. Jim's own slogan for the campaign became, Use Wilkins Coffee or else. Okay, buddy, what do you think of Wilkins Coffee? I never tasted it. Now, what do you think of Wilkins? We're here to persuade people to drink more Wilkins Coffee. What's the club for? To get their attention. You know, people who don't drink Wilkins coffee just blow up sometimes. Oh, that's a lot of... See what I mean? I really love my Wilkins coffee. You ought to see a psychiatrist. I did. That's who told me about Wilkins. I used to love my raincoat. I can get you Wilkins coffee for a price. I wouldn't touch it. There's no future in an attitude like that. Grandma, it's Little Red Riding Hood with your Wilkins coffee. I'm the bad wolf and I just ate your grandma. Well, have some Wilkins to wash her down. Okay, William, tell us. Better be good. Do you drink Wilkins coffee? No. We can still use the apple again. <laughs> so violent. They are, but with the outside knowledge that Jim didn't like Wilkins coffee. He didn't like coffee. He hated coffee. But there was something that was weirdly cathartic in that, because the average layperson watching the commercial, especially in a time when visuals in commercials are relatively new, right? Like, you, you still had radio yep. commercials and things like that. That would be very, very direct. Oh, and like we said, or they were baked into the shows, right? Or else the star of the right. show would step aside and go, Hi, I'm Chet whatever. Please buy this product. And there's that level of this taste that Wonkins regularly has, that's just like Jim's five seconds of this actually sucks, and then we're going to go back to the punchline, because he still he gets to 
win twice because he he can say what he really thinks about the coffee and then he still gets to end each sketch with someone getting blown up or eaten <laughs> so uh wilkins is trying to convince wonkins wonkins kind of looks like grimace from mcdonald's to me to uh to drink coffee i'm gonna list you all some at least some of the things i was able to catch all the things awful that happened to wonkins he gets stabbed shot blasted with a cannon given the electric chair split by a buzzsaw exploded eaten by a whale clubbed Run over by a literal bandwagon, run over by a train, scared off by wild horses, dropped out of a hot air balloon, sawed in half like a magician's assistant, blown out of a cannon, branded with a cattle iron, drowned in a swimming pool, smashed on the head with a bottle, clobbered with a mallet, kicked out of a tree, nearly guillotined, he takes an arrow to the head, stepped on by a human foot, eaten by a large monster, of course, like you said, crushed by the Washington Monument, because remember, these ads were local, plummeted from the side of a mountain, thrown out of multiple planes, and it's implied that he gets a little bit of Sweeney Todd treatment when he gets a shave. Now, what do you think of Wilkins? I watched 206 Wilkins and Wilkins commercials this week. I lost count. Those 206 ads that I watched represented 14 brands, including four types of coffee and three types of bread. You don't really find an ad for one of the other brands that you also don't find for Wilkins coffee. Every single one is like there's a Wilkins bit, then they would just modify it. Jim was famous for, uh, he never cut corners in this case. He re-recorded it every time, reshot it every time. They could have easily found a way to like just dub the voices in, but he wanted to have like the, the product in the shot. He did 14 commercials for Community Coffee, Nash's Coffee, Red Diamond Coffee, Frank's Soda, Fago, I think is the only company that's still around, Tasty Bread and all these things. But they were very much like the same commercials for, for Wilkins Coffee. But there was only, and I caught one, and I was surprised. Like I said, I watched over 200 of these things. I only caught one that was like super racist. It has some kind of like kind of real bad Chinese kind of Ching Chong accent in it. That felt real racist. Actually, that's a good time. To, that's a good point to bring this up. We are not going to shy away from things that are, by modern standards, problematic. We will address them and talk about them, but we will also not use them to condemn everything as a whole. Does that seem fair? Yeah, that's. I, we also have to be mindful of the fact that these are products of their time. Yes. And as I say that, it doesn't excuse things so much as no. it provides context. Right and wrong doesn't change. But what's socially acceptable does. And so you can look back on something and say, that is wrong, because that is racist. But it was socially acceptable at the time. The Muppet Show is, along with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, my favorite television show of all time. And I'm telling you, when we get to The Muppet Show... We're going to be dealing with some problematic things. We're going to be dealing with some cultural stereotypes. It's shorthand. We're going to be dealing with some sexism. We're going to, I don't, I don't know what you call it. I don't want to use the term fat, but like, there's no other word for it, but like ableism or whatever. But there's a lot of fat jokes at Miss Piggy's expense. They would, one, not fly today, and two, are very funny. <laughs> That's the line we're going to have to walk, you know? There's, there's no such thing as purity, and I, I don't think anything will ever be fully sanitized. We, we've come a long way from where we were, and we should continue to move forward. To me, it's much more productive to learn from it than to just dismiss it. Especially in this case, where the man's dead. Like, if I feel hate in his heart for these things, then we'll have a problem. And I think that's a very key difference. There's a difference between uh, Mel Brooks racist and Richard Spencer racist. <laughs> yes, there is. There is. Yes. I just wanted to bring it up because I know there's going to be times where we're like, oh, that's racist. You know, uh, a Muppet Show episode where, where there's a character dressed up as a, a quote-unquote Arab. Yeah. We're going to acknowledge it. We're just not going to dwell on it because... You got to let your heroes bleed. I mean, we're starting in 1954, 1955. Everything was problematic then. So so of the Wilkins and Wilkins commercials, like, would it, does it make you want to buy coffee? No, but I stopped drinking coffee when I was three. Uh, I'm a weird case. <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't drink coffee. I love these commercials. They're great. And they're, there's got to be a very... What about, his rain, the, what about his raincoat is so damn funny. Yeah. I used to love my raincoat. But that's, that's just it, though. They're so punchy so quickly. You've got to have that pivot. Eight seconds. And you get a full snapshot of the situation. And Wilkins and Wilkins being recurring characters means that you eventually know what the dynamic's going to be anytime you see them on screen. But there's always something very satisfying in whatever the resolution of it is, where Wonkins is unabashedly peer pressured into drinking coffee or seeing himself die. But there's even an arc to it, though, because there's eventually kind of episodes where Wonkins is like, okay, I really kind of do like the coffee. Mm -hmm. Like, like they even he even played with their relationship as time went on. 
I was also impressed with how, as the commercials went along, they got bigger. Mm -hmm. Costumes, set pieces. Uh, they they would do ones that were like period pieces. That's part of Jim's mo, though. Is he and we'll see it more when we start getting to the Muppet movies. But he likes to innovate. Like a lot of great artists, they're they're also inventors. Sometimes an artist, there's not a way for them to express themselves. It's already that already exists. And so they have to create it. If you look at the career of obviously George Lucas or even James Cameron, James Cameron's biggest contribution to filmmaking will not be his movies. It's going to be all the technological advances that he, he made. But he made those technological advances so he could make his movies the way he wanted. And I think you're going to see that with Henson the same way. The innovation is bred from the creativity. And it's like, I can't do this, but I want to. So I'm going to find a way to do it. I don't know. There's not a whole lot to say about these commercials. We wanted to watch them because they're definitely part of the story. Muppets, Inc. and these commercials were a huge part of the Muppets for about 12 years. Without these commercials, we may not have gotten the rest of the Muppets. I, I think that's definitely true. But also, the comedic beats are up from Sam and Friends. Like, I, I realize they're probably concurrent with a lot of them, and maybe it just forced them to be a bit more snappy. But when you get to the Muppet show and you see just how much tighter the sketches are I, I do think that them iterating so many times and them rehashing the same thing in slightly different ways definitely contributed to just how strong the Muppet show was I had seen some of these before but watching all of them the other night like just er, and, and, and to point out the reason we were able to watch so many of these unlike Salmon Friends is that a commercial was shot on film while we think he made around 180 spots for Wilkins Coffee I watched like 140 of them the other night because they still exist because they were put on celluloid. And did you see they do eventually turn to color? There is a whole lot of Muppet commercials to talk about. We're going to just stop at Wilkins and Wonkins today because of chronology reasons. In fact, next week, a series of commercials is going to give, give the Muppets their first uh, national star. All in all, these are a treat. <laughs> it's. I thought these were a, a real treat. It was definitely enjoyable to go through. Like you, the Wilkins and Wonkin one, Wonkin, ah, Wonkin's ones get a little bit repetitive, but also they're not written to be shotgun the way we were. <laughs> no, no. I sat on my couch with a notepad so I could keep track of how many I was watching and how many of each one I was watching. And it went on for way longer than I thought it was going to. <laughs> I just kept going. I kept going. I was like, there are so many. I used to love my raincoat. In the summer of 1958, Jim traveled to Europe and there was a decent chance he might not come back. He'd been doing Sam and Friends for three years. He and Jim were doing two or three shows a day, going to sleep, getting up, and doing it again. With great success comes great work, and Jim never shied from work. But was this the work he wanted to be doing? Sam and Friends was a big hit in D.C. The Muppets were getting known nationally. The commercials were bringing in real good money, and they had just won a local Emmy Award for Best Local Entertainment Program. But Jim hadn't set out to be a puppeteer. It was just a way to get into television, a, a means to an end. He didn't see a future in puppets. It wasn't going to take him where he wanted to go. And it wasn't fulfilling the artist inside of him. He needed a break. So he had left the show in the capable hands of Jane and Bobby Payne, a friend of his since high school, and headed to Europe to learn to paint, which may be the most pretentious thing Jim Henson ever did. He went to France, Switzerland, Germany, and even saw the World's Fair in Brussels. While Jim was looking for painters to inspire him, he stumbled on something else. In Europe, everyone goes to puppet shows, he observed. He couldn't believe it. The more time he spent in Europe, the more puppets he saw, and the more puppeteers he met, and the more he came to understand that puppetry was a real art, practiced by real artists. And, judging by the reactions of the crowds he saw, people really dug puppets. After six weeks in Europe, Jim came back invigorated, ready to go. But before he changed an art form forever, he had a few things to take care of. In 1958, Jim and Jane formed Muppets Incorporated. They had been business partners for several years, and it was time to make it official. The next year, they made something else official, in a small ceremony on Jane's family farm. Four years of being creative partners had led to what some thought was an inevitable relationship, despite the fact that they had both been engaged to other people when they started dating. 
Many have written about or speculated upon the marriage of Jim and Jane Henson. We're not going to get into it on this podcast, so all we'll say is this. Theirs did not seem to be a storybook romance of love and passion, but more an agreement between two people to build a life, family, and, yes, a business, together. Everyone's marriage is different, and it's not up to anyone to judge how others live theirs. There was one notable absence at the wedding. Three years earlier, Navy Ensign Paul Ransom Henson Jr. had been stationed in Florida for pilot training when the car containing him and two others lost control and rolled four times. Paul Jr. survived the immediate crash, but succumbed to his injuries at the hospital that afternoon. He was 23. A loss like that is always devastating, and this was no different. Betty, understandably, was never the same. Paul Jr. was her favorite, not that she would have ever said that out loud. Jim would miss Paul for the rest of his life and talk about him in his quieter moments. He internalized that grief, turned it towards work, but something changed inside of him. Time, and its inexorable passing, would be the subject of one of Jim's most bizarre and personal projects that we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. He never forgot the lesson Paul's death taught him. Friend and colleague Frank Oz would later say about the accident that Jim realized that he just didn't have an infinite amount of time to do all the things he wanted to do. And, as we will discuss in the coming weeks, he had so many things he wanted to do. Next week, Sam and Friends comes to an end, and Jim takes us on a trip to the magical land of Tinker D. Yes, that magical land of Tinker D, where we all... No one's ever heard of Tinker D. <laughs> we'll find out next week what Tinker D is. Um, anyway, uh, check us out, lunaticdaring.com, at lunaticdaring on all the social media platforms. I'm Chad. I'm Nick. That's Nick. Fine, that's Nick. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's all good, and uh, we'll 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 uh, we'll talk to you. we'll talk to you next week. Talk to you guys soon. I used to love my raincoat. A feat of lunatic daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podowitz and a proud production of Antithesis Audio.